I'm black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. Welcome to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? And in this edition, we're going to be talking uh, with two young people, two of the top uh, young people, in our opinion, in the country, uh, Jacob Conley and Dr. Thurber. We're very excited to kind of get a uh, just a younger perspective on race relations on campuses of various types. And so we're going to be talking about that today. But before we uh, jump into that, uh, Chris, I kind of want to go back to our previous episode, and uh, we talked with uh, Dr. Mike Beasy, and um, it was like, uh, I, I don't know, a really great episode for me. I learned a lot, uh, particularly when we got to talking about um, art and how he's teaching that uh, to young people and teaching uh, different perspectives on race uh, through art, like when we're talking about uh, removing monuments and things like that and how he gives them uh, just a perspective on how the monument, how and why, I should say, the monument got um, put there in the first place, like in front of courthouses and things, and what that means, and then to see if it and how it has any impact on the students. I thought that that was very interesting. And uh, actually, I, it was some things about that that I didn't know that, you know, I went and sort of read some other stuff on and... Uh, kind of enhanced my perspective on it. I won't say changed, but enhanced it a lot. So, Yeah, it was fascinating. Um, and I was encouraged by Dr. Beezy's having said that in the course of his several decades uh, at Marist School that he, as chair of the fine arts department, has had the experience of being able to influence the curriculum. And as it's evolved, uh, for that curriculum, especially in teaching fine arts, whether that's, you know, literature, painting, sculpture, architecture, be more inclusive, be more worldly. And he also talked about the changes that he's made just in the order of the curriculum. And mm -hmm. I liked his commentary on the both the order and what you include or choose to exclude influencing the way that people think about the relative importance of, you know, different styles, different cultures. And as you said, and I didn't know this either, startling to think about not just the historical significance of a particular monument, you know, sculpture of some general or soldier or uh, activist, but the placement of that, like you said, mm -hmm. in front of a courthouse. So somebody who is about to be, let's say, arraigned or put on trial walking past somebody somebody's you know this effigy of another person who perhaps historically was very violent to members of their family or their ancestors and that 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 the placement isn't really something that i've heard anyone else talk about besides dr mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was i thought it was very very um just you know very imp impressive and eye-opening just his uh, sense of hope for yeah. uh, young people, uh, given everything that's going on, it's easy to kind of lose that hope. But he seemed to 
to have that, you know, in abundance. And so I was very encouraged by that, which was, you know, great to bring us into this episode dealing with uh, with young people and to, to get their perspective and to see, um, you know, if they have you know, that same sense of hope, it'll be very interesting. Not and that I'm you excited. and I aren't young, by the way. I mean, let's just... No, no. I mean, I mean, I meant younger. Clearly, we are eternally yeah. youthful. Yeah. Uh, oh, the yeah. Both, <laughs> both of us. Yeah. Uh, so I will introduce uh, Jacob Conley, just if for no other reason because of uh, the similarity of the last name. Uh, but uh, Jacob is a young man I've been impressed with for a number of years for a number of reasons. And um he is, he'll tell you more about himself probably than I can, and I'll be taking notes so we can discuss it later. <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, he's uh, <laughs> exactly, but well, we're very uh, proud that he is attending uh, the Boston Conservatory uh, right now and studying musical theater. He is an extremely talented young man in uh, so many uh, different areas uh, of art. He's a poet, he's a singer, he's an actor, uh, just uh, amazing, but also um, just has a real heart for people and for a lot of what's going on in the country. Um, we have some great discussions about it, and his perspective is always interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I give to you Jacob Conley. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Jacob. Um, it's kind of hard to follow such a grand introduction. Um, yeah. but, uh, hello everybody. Like, uh, he said, my name is Jacob Conley. Um, I, uh, like he also said, I attend the Boston Conservatory. I'm studying musical theater. Um, I'm also a writer. I'm working on a novel right now, um, called The Landing at West 128th about this young black man who flees to New York and finds himself in Harlem when he tries to dodge the Vietnam draft. Um, I am um, trying to add dancer to that list of, uh, of talents, but that one is, uh, oh boy, um, and that one's coming along very slowly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, um, other than that, though, I just, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, um, guys. Thank you guys for inviting me. Um, I am excited to talk about my experience in a campus setting because I've really usually been the only black person in a classroom. Um, I've been to majority white schools my whole life. And the perspective that I have as the kind of um, educator um, of a lot of my white classmates, especially those who want to learn more about something um, is, is an interesting one, especially because it's the age-old question of, are they listening to me because they want to learn, or are they listening to me because they want to gain some social clout, you know what I mean, to say that they have listened to the Black kids, so they know now what the situation is. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to offer that perspective to the show, so thank you guys for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, and sadly, uh, four or five of the other guests we had lined up uh, canceled, but we were able to get Dacha Server, <laughs> who, uh, who shares my name and uh, nice. is um, also artistic, as you are, Jacob. Uh, Dacha plays the violin and for many years played with the Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra. So you guys have Boston in common. And when the quarantine is over, you'll get to hang out. 
Um, and like you, David, I'm really proud of Dacha and he's done a lot of cool things. We um, are excited to have you on the show today, Dacha, because you graduated in June from Phillips Exeter Academy, the independent school where I work, and your perspective on that will be interesting and your experience there, especially comparing it to, you know, the prior eight or nine years of public school here in mostly white New Hampshire. And um, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dacha Thurber. Tell us about yourself, buddy. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Uh, have a great, great conversation today. Yeah. So um, I graduated high school last June um, from our living room. And uh, I'm taking a gap year right now. I'm working at the summer camp where I usually work during the summer, which was unable to have campers uh, this year uh, because of the pandemic. But we're working to sort of prepare for next summer and actually to make camp a more welcoming place to all sorts of different people. Um, and after this year, I'll be at Harvard in the fall of 2021. Not sure exactly what I want to study. Music is definitely one of my, one of my passions. I'm also working this, uh, this gap year, uh, neuroscience internship, doing a lot of computational work stuff that I can do from home and we'll, we'll see where that goes. So, but I don't, I don't have a really firm plan for the next four or five years, but I'm excited to be here right now. Cool. Those were the days. <laughs> so I, I want to um, begin by telling a story that has nothing to do with Dacha, but with his younger brother, and it was, uh, Dutch, I'm, you've heard me tell this story before, but Jacob, you mentioned a minute ago that you've gone to mostly white schools, and I want to hear more about the position that that puts you in, which is an interesting one, as you said, um, educating uh, and wondering about the reasons why. Dacha and his younger brother, Sava, went to mostly white schools as well, public school in Exeter, New Hampshire. And fortunately, then the high school where I work and where Dacha just graduated and Sava will be in 11th grade is a far more diverse place, uh, ethnically, religiously, geographically, socioeconomically. So uh, Dacha, I'd also like to hear from you what that change from eighth grade to ninth grade was like. But here's the story. When my younger son Sava was in second grade, so he was seven, um, he's young for his grade, he came home uh, and I think it was just the week leading up to Martin Luther King Day. And the teacher had asked each of the kids to interview somebody in their family or friend about race and ethnicity. And I think there were you know, second grade. So I think the teacher had written a couple of the interview questions. And I asked Dacha um, who he planned to interview. And he said, well, I want to, I want to interview Xavier's dad. And Xavier's 
one of his three best friends who's black. And I said, oh, you know, that would be great to interview Tony and let me see the questions. So I looked at the questions and there were sorts of things that you would expect that were about what do you know about Martin Luther King and what influence do you think that Martin Luther King's legacy has had on your life and so forth. And it occurred to me as I'm having this conversation with Savalik, but I haven't asked him. I'm really interested to hear from his mouth. Why, why does he want to interview his one black friend's dad about Martin Luther King? Like, I think I can start to connect some of the dots, but I want to know from Sava. So I said, Sava, I'm interested why you would want to interview Xavier's dad in particular of all the different choices. And he said to me with a total straight face and absolute innocence, well, I also want to ask him what it was like to be a slave. Mm. And I mean, I was slack jawed. I didn't, you know, so I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we learned about the history of slavery and how Martin Luther King helped to advance civil rights and, um, and I said, yeah, I mean, that's all true, but that was, you know, I, you know, and I was just like I am now, like at a loss for words. I wanted to tell him, okay, well, the Civil War was, you know, in the 1860s, and this is what the Emancipation Proclamation was, but so many of these problems persist. Uh, but Xavier's dad was never a slave. Uh, There's a different way to ask that question, but he'd just taken the whole sort of timeline of race relations and slavery and just, you know, foreshortened it into a single generation. Mm -hmm. So there was some explanation there, but, um, you know, it was, it, it made me realize as a white parent, how insufficiently I had, done any of my own explaining about the history of this country. So that, you know, full disclosure, um, I think Dacha for you and for Sava, I didn't do a very good job until much more recently. uh, And you had lots of exposure to different cultures, but mostly, you know, people with white skin. what what was that experience like for you kind of growing up? You may not have had that uh, sort of misconception that Sava had, but I'm curious, having just turned 18 yesterday, what your recollection is of this first chunk of your life with regard to uh, racism and particular anti-Black racism specifically? Yeah, so I think... I mean, a lot of a lot of the the early years, my my recollection is a little hazy. But I think one one um, anecdote that I think is very telling is while while I was going through grade school, uh, New Hampshire was implementing the sort of Common Core, the new curriculum for the state, and so the the curricula for different subjects was changing as I was going through third or fourth or fifth grade. Um, And it was a gradual sort of phase in type change. So because of that, because of where I was placed um, in, in the grade, 
uh, and when these changes were happening, I ended up taking U.S. history uh, like four times <laughs> by eighth grade. Wow. Um, Good use of my tax dollars. That's another <laughs> episode. <laughs> it was, well, yeah. So, so it started um, in third grade, and and obviously it, classes, especially uh, less. Uh, objective classes, uh, subjects like humanities and history, for example, are need to be taught in an age-appropriate way. So, so the third grade history curriculum is different than the eighth grade curriculum and the the mm -hmm. junior year of high school curriculum. Uh, however, the the Rep the repetition of the same U.S. history uh, sequence, which which started with uh, European colonization, uh, Leif, Eric Leif Erikson in the year 1000, and then a large 500-year jump to Christopher Columbus, and then very spotty until uh, spotty coverage in the curriculum until the Revolutionary War, mm. and third grade ended at the end of the revolutionary war as did uh fifth grade the eighth grade curriculum um continued through the civil war uh reconstruction that ended before the first world war okay and the go, going through that curriculum three times obviously it changed as as i got older uh in in a in following the the aging of the students it also changed uh as they implemented the new curriculum and so i was able to see what was kept and what was changed uh so the things that i learned about three times three different years were the the white people who colonized uh, uh, America and and the white people who fought the Revolutionary War and and the the non-white centric history of of the US was not didn't seem like a priority in those those curricula uh, even as as they were changing um, and so, I, I don't know how it is now. The the history class I took in high school was a lot more comprehensive, um, and also covered a lot a lot more um, time. But I think that I think that the the U.S. I mean the U.S. history that's that's taught at least that I was taught in the New Hampshire public schools was was not a not a history of the country, but a history of the white people who won yeah i was i was i was curious as to when you were saying the changes um as to whether that changed because the telling part about this story that uh that doc chris told um before is what i was talking about i think chris in the first episode and that is that if you teach a people that the only contribution 
is slavery or being oppressed, and you teach them that those people are less than. Mm-hmm. You know, you teach them directly or indirectly that that is their place in lot in life, and that is how you should look at them. And so that thinking is starting to be cemented uh, in in the young man in the second grade. That's, yeah. that's scary. And worse, but, and it, worse yeah. still, that it was fixed. Like, there was right. this problem. Like, slavery was terrible, and it disappeared in 1865. So, you know, so but, now you can interview but people that about the only it, but. people who had done contributions, like, the only, you know what I mean, really is... Like yeah. there's slavery and then there's Martin Luther King. Right. Like so, and and so there's no. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, so, so I understand that history from Dodge's point of view. Did you learn anything uh, different? Was your experience with the history different, Jacob? Um, I I went to Marist School for high school, and Marist mm-hmm. prides itself on being a college preparatory school. And so especially once you get up into, I would say, starting sophomore year, it has seventh through 12. Starting sophomore year is when they really get into the nitty gritty is when they start having AP courses that you can take, AP U.S. history, AP world history, all that kind of stuff. And the AP courses are, I, I hesitate to say less Eurocentric, but more honest in its Eurocentrism, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but in what we learned about slavery and U.S. history, on it does, regardless of where you are in, in education, it kind of goes from Columbus, kind of skips over the genocide of the Native Americans, to slavery, to the Civil War and slavery is over, to Martin Luther King. And... As the black person in class, whenever we talked about slavery or civil rights, it was always the look over the shoulder. It was always the, what is the black kid who's in the class going to to say about it? And at a certain point, I sort of became, and there's this term in in literature and in film and stuff called the mythical Negro, where there's a, a, a black character that somehow so wise and has some magical powers that will help solve the problem that the white character is going through. Mm. I kind of became that character in high school. And I still am that character in college, which we'll get to um, as we talk, but it became a, like, what can he teach us about this? And so to answer your question about what the curriculum was like, it was basically just that. And Talking about how young a person is when they learn this stuff, I think the fact that, like you were saying, Dacha, the coverage is so spotty when you're younger is because it's so atrocious. You know what I mean? And they can't necessarily be like, they can't, it would be kind of ridiculous to teach a third grader about lynchings and cross burnings Mm. and all that kind of stuff. Regardless of how much that is the history, there's not really a way to there's not really a way to dummy that down to a digestible level for somebody that young. But then to save face, they still don't do it when you're older. Um, And so a lot of the stuff that I've learned about, especially the civil rights movement, what happened when I got to college, it happened when I had access to the Boston Public Library and I went there almost like religiously. But what you hate about that is 
like uh, Dad was saying about how it's slavery and then Martin Luther King and now racism is over. When I went to the Boston Public Library, I was trying to educate myself on all different types of thought during the civil rights movement. Um, and so I was trying to find a book on Malcolm X speeches. And this is an example of how kind of quiet as it's kept, deeply ingrained this stuff is because in school, they kind of only want to teach you about the black people who had to do with the civil rights movement that make white people comfortable. So they only want to teach you about the Rosa Parks who said no, and then, oh my God, she's great. And they, but they don't tell you about how poorly she was treated when she was put in jail. Um, and then they want to tell you about Martin Luther King, but only the let's peacefully protest part and not the black owned wealth, black owned businesses, black owned banks kind of thing. And then they don't want to talk to you about Malcolm X at all because Malcolm X is just the violent version of Martin Luther King Jr., which is an incredibly watered down description of what Malcolm X was all about. But when I went to the Boston Public Library to find a book on Malcolm X speeches, they didn't have any directly on the shelves. They had Martin Luther King. Um, they had all these other more digestible Black thinkers, but they didn't have Malcolm X. They had it in the catalog, but I had to go to the archive desk, ask for a copy of it. It took them about 45 minutes to find it. Then they would bring it to me, and I could only read it in the library, and I couldn't take it out of the library. And I had to have it back at the archival desk by half an hour to close it. Now, this, to the uninitiated of <laughs> what it's like to be in a library and what a library is supposed to offer, this doesn't necessarily sound like that big of a deal. Like, oh, okay, it's a rare book, you know, that they want to keep safe. But when you really start to think about why they have a Malcolm X book that I could buy for $10 on Amazon, so hard for me to find, I can't take it out of the library, I have to bring it back before closing, it takes them almost an hour for me to even get my hands on it. And this wasn't some kind of like signed first edition? Exactly. Mm, it wasn't yeah. anything, it wasn't like Malcolm X's original manuscripts <laughs> from, no, 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 it wasn't anything like that. In his handwriting. When, you, yeah. when right. you when you do that, you ingrain a few things. One, that this is some type of wildly radical thought. You know what I mean? That has to be protected. Contained. Mm -hmm. Contained, exactly. Um, but then also it's the deterrent of going through all of these loop these these rings to jump through to find it in the first place. Because on the website, on the Boston Public Library website, it says that it is available on the shelves. It doesn't make any mention of the Raiders of the Lost Ark business you have to go through <laughs> to, Quest. to get it. Yeah. It was only until I couldn't find it when it said uh. it was in stock that I went to the library and at the circulation desk and she told me what I had to do. But all of those hoops are a deterrent to actually getting your hands yeah. on the content of the book. Um, and I think that is similar to the mainstream um, curriculum, history curriculum in this yeah. country. I think it's very much what can we put forward to where people learn, to where people have a very surface level knowledge of it so that they can talk about it at dinner parties, you know what I mean, versus what actually is the, the – 
um, undoctored, mm-hmm. full-bodied fact of, of the matter, which is uncomfortable. And, yeah. and I want to say this right quick, just because I want to make sure that that something I'm saying is clear too. Like, I don't think that you should teach a, a, a second or third grader about the atrocities of slavery and 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 oppressing uh, an entire people are peoples if you think about you know some of the other uh people like the indigenous people and things like that but i do think that it is important to as you're teaching history and you're teaching the contributions of people to building the country that you teach the contributions of all the people i think what's glaringly absent is the contributions of African-Americans to Mm -hmm. this country to where if you took those contributions away, you could somehow go back in history and take the country wouldn't exist. And I'm not talking about just the free labor that you have for generations. I'm talking inventions. I'm talking advancements in everything from art to science to, you know what I mean? So, so for the music, exactly. So for you to, to take away all of those contributions is for you to say and to further the thought that black people can only do certain things. Like even when you start talking about uh, sports, in certain sports, the thinking was that you couldn't play those sports or they didn't want you to play those sports because you didn't have the brain power to do it. And we're talking like basketball. Do you know what I mean? Which obviously is not true. Now we're talking about coaching. We're talking about quarterbacking as far as positions go. I'm just keeping it in sports because again, that's digestible. But I'm saying when you start talking about uh, science and mathematics and and things like that, there are people who had to go through, you know, more stuff than to get the Malcolm X book. But the principles are saying go through a whole lot to exercise their ability to think in this way and then contribute to uh, to society in that way, philosophers and 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 people like that that get zero or or very minimal, if any, credit in the history that's being taught to young people about. It. So I'm saying, I think you should teach them about later on as they get older and and more able to handle the things. You should teach them more about the atrocities that's brought upon people. But I don't think that black people should be solely defined by their suffering. I think that does something as well. I think that's a part of it. But the other part of it is (laughs) that black history is American history, you know, and if you don't teach those contributions, you subtly tell people that there is no contribution to be made and yeah. and therefore that you you shouldn't have a black president because no they well how could they be president their their only claim to fame is suffering you know what i mean and so when you do that that's that's deep you know, so it, in the second grade you can teach them about the contributions of black people you know? and i think too in the second grade um you know jacob i agree with you that you know the curriculum needs to be developmentally sensitive and there are there are photographs and stories and narratives that wouldn't be appropriate for a second grader but i think second grade is not too early to talk about people getting killed because of their race and taken advantage of because of enslavement and 
how that as an institution existed to, you know, create free labor, as David was saying. So, um, you know, it's fascinating to hear this story about the library because when I've spoken to other adults my age or older who wonder, uh, especially some who have uh, listened to or watched some episodes of I'm Black, You're White, Now What?, they're still confused about what institutional racism is, as if institutional racism means that there's some institution, like there's some, you know, building, I'm sure with like giant white pillars where Mm -hmm. people are still cooking up ideas of racism and implementing them. And it's, it's not that it's more insidious than that. It's the, it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark search that you had to make to get a book that is, you know, so the Boston Public Library is an institution and still has vestiges uh, of of this kind of, of these roadblocks, right? Which is Absolutely. the, and they are roadblocks that would not typically be visible unless you're black or interested in, you know, doing some research. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, how, how we excise all of that, I mean, that's, that's a slow process, but it it certainly begins with people understanding just this concept of institutional racism and how exhausting it is to have to jump through all of these hoops. You know? Absolutely. So let, I want to kind of, um, because I don't want to lose time to do it, but I want to kind of talk about uh, especially since we're on institutional racism, um, just about what life is like on these various mm. campuses. We've been talking about a um, situation where you both experience campuses that are predominantly uh, white. And so I just want to kind of know what your, and we can start with you, Dacha, about what your experience is as far as like race relations on campus, I would think that um, normally it would seem, you know, sort of benign and, and and friendly or what have you. But especially with things the way they are now, um, you know, just what are some of the things that you're seeing or some of the uh, is, is there any contention at all or is it all, uh, you know, all we're saying is give peace a chance, you know, free love. Yeah. So I'll start by saying it's hard, hard for me to say because I, um, in the, in the context of, um, the Black Hat Exeter Instagram account, uh, and, and, uh, explain what that is for so, our um, viewers who don't, the, um, anonymous student run Instagram account, where um, black students and and faculty are are encouraged to share um, stories of their negative experiences with racism on Exeter's campus or in the town or or in, in related processes. So there there are probably ten or twenty posts a week. Uh, Many come from students uh, from all 
all classes from current students. I think some, you know, go back one year, thirty years. Um, and it it's hard for me to say what what that's like on campus because it's all started from this spring when everybody was was home. And so my my understanding of what campus will be like uh, in the fall is as students um, re reconvene on on uh, the same campus comes from like three emails that we've been sent from from deans or from the principal or uh, well the deans and the principal uh, and much of the many of the announcements that have been made about changes that that will happen in response to the Instagram account and in response to letters that that students wrote to to the uh, deans or, or the principal are firstly uh, conversations one-on-one -on -one conversations with uh, faculty uh, or staff who have been directly mentioned in, in these um, posts so one-on-one -on -one between uh, a dean and, the, and the, the faculty or staff member, and and some professional development training for the for the staff. In addition to some facilitated conversations among students, uh, come the fall once once as many people as possible are back on campus. Um, it I it's hard for me to know how productive those conversations uh, will be. I can speak from the experience of, of some facilitated discussions uh, in the past, which were in a um, different national context and, and uh, in response to, to different things. Uh, in, in my experience, the, the facilitation was not helpful or very helpful. It's hard to Hard to have an honest conversation when there's a proctor there, you know, guiding it or or, or you know, directing the conversation. Um, I think I also have a limited experience because I'm a day student, so I I live at home and not in a dorm with um, you know, forty other students. Um, in uh, and I th I think what what my dad said is also also true. It's it's I have the privilege to not be forced to notice uh, instances of, of of sort of hidden hidden racism uh, because of the color of my skin. It's uh, the one of the benefits I think of this Instagram account is that it, it provides a place where students can can uh, share their experiences, and I think that. Um, if if it takes a, an anonymous account uh, to um, share some of these experiences, I think it's a tremendous problem with the campus. If there's you know one student who feels like they need to be completely anonymous um, in order to tell people how they're feeling, um, mm -hmm. I, I I don't think that's right. That that sheds light on a on a huge problem. Uh, uh, the drawback is that it, it's hard to know where to go from there. And I think that the, the school is struggling a little bit 
um, it seems like the response is being is very broad, uh, addressing specific. Sorry, uh, I'll clarify. Broad meaning uh, less. Uh, I'll give it. I'll give an example. The the um, individual conversations with teachers or facilitated discussions or professional development. It seems that it's too much just uh, as, a, as a reaction or in, in response to, for example, this Instagram account and, and less uh, um, proactive. Dutch, mm -hmm. can you talk um, a little bit about, and maybe just either notch your microphone, gain up a tad, or stay closer to your laptop, because um, you were fading just a tad there, but can you talk about your personal experience? I mean, the reason, one of the main reasons why David and I started this podcast webinar series was we wanted to learn from each other, we wanted to learn from our guests, and we also wanted to show that uh, people can have difficult conversations, interesting, challenging conversations about race and learn a lot. Uh, but if you if you would talk about your personal experience with the Black at Instagram, uh, sorry, okay. Black at Exeter Instagram account, and you know, you said a few minutes ago, doesn't leave a lot of places to go or that, uh, I forget your word, but the, the things got a little stuck. But put it in your own words, because I'm just eager for people to understand what your experience was. Great. So yeah, so uh, one, I'll share one, one story. So one, Post on on Blackhead Exeter said, um, um, paraphrasing, it said, it, it's quite frustrating that some counselors at Exeter have children that go to the academy, uh, who may be the root of certain people's problems. Uh, lightly paraphrasing, I think it, that that was pretty close to what it said. Um, and just so people who are watching or listening know, they're there are five counselors, five mental health professionals at Exeter, two of whom have kids at school, uh, my colleague Joe and I. So she and I are the two people um, there, you know, others had kids at Exeter 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, but this was, yeah, this was a post from the, the class, a member of the class of 2021. So um, mm -hmm. current student. Um, yeah. Could have been talking about three uh, students, my my brother, Miss um, Motz's daughter, um, or me. And uh, at first, I was I was really sad to read that, um, and I was a little bit confused because um, you know I I try not to be a really aggressive or abrasive person, and in a way that would uh, prevent somebody from giving me any indication that I'm the root of their problems. Like that seems like a pretty strong uh, uh, way to, way to, way to describe somebody. Um, and I can say with a clean conscience that I have never gotten any indication from anyone that I could be the root of their problems. However, if it were the case, um, I, I'm would, and was even more worried that, 
in addition to being the root of somebody's all of somebody's problems that it, I could be such a abrasive person that they wouldn't even be able to either a tell me or that I have been so oblivious that I just have no idea. Um, and of course, potentially could have been talking about um, somebody else, but I DM'd the account and I said, this is, I was really sad to read this. And I think it's my responsibility in, in this situation to uh, make amends, see what, see what I like, what I can do differently so that whoever wrote this doesn't have to feel this way. Uh, which on a side note, um, it was uh, a little bit confusing just in itself because the post was a little bit ambiguous. It said that these kids of the counselors could be the root of certain people's problems. It may not have even been about the author themselves. Uh, it may have been completely hypothetical. It was very, very um, ambiguous, but I DM'd the account and I said uh, how I felt and I asked them to please share with the author of the post my email address so that if it is about me, we can talk about it and I can apologize and I can make amends and, and I will treat you differently um, from now on. And they replied and they said, sorry, we can't do that. It's, a, it's an anonymous account. Um, you could post on your story and if they follow you, the person might see that and, and might reach out. But because it's an anonymous account, sorry, we can't help you. Um, and that was that was almost more uh, uh, sad for me to hear because I I was still worried it could have been about me and and I didn't know where to go where to go from there and and that was one of the uh, I th I think one of the limitations of of these anonymous Instagram accounts um, I I think I'm I'm glad that it exists and that uh in addition to exposing the problem that students felt like they could not share these stories some for any reason on campus um, in addition to to uh, uh acknowledging their their experiences uh that was one drawback is that i felt a little bit stuck there i didn't know how to how to proceed and i'm, I'm sure uh, if students were um on campus altogether, um, not in their rooms or, or elsewhere, the situation would have been different. It, but it was it was it was tough. I didn't um, I didn't know exactly where to go from there. Jacob, what Dacha, thank you for sharing that. Um, I would just say quickly, my experience as a faculty member there for twenty two years is in some ways similar that I know problems around uh, racism exist in mostly in these kinds of harder to see ways and i've been through so many workshops where the intention of the facilitator is to equip the faculty members with some listening or self-expression skills and then it's over um, so you have these skills and you're aware of the problem. And then, you know, sometimes the conversations happen um, and progress is made, but not as much as I think the faculty and staff and students are capable of. 
and it's you know it's I haven't been stuck dacha in that same way but 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 I still feel stuck um, and I want to you know I want to be able to do more um, so Jacob I'm curious what uh, maybe there are some similarities or maybe not to your experience either uh, at Marist or at Boston Conservatory but what's the what's the experience what's been your experience on the campuses where you've gone to school uh yeah so i'll I'll briefly touch on marist especially just because marist has a similar instagram page um uh we have a we have a black marist instagram page as well and i think i think one of the um bonuses is that you by being anonymous you do get a chance to offer some hopefully some hopeful self-awareness that is usually lost. Like Dacha, in your situation, of course it's on a grander scheme when it doesn't, when it's not like a one of three kind of situation. But um, when you say, when an anonymous source says, uh, my fellow white students do X, Y, and Z. And then those white students are like, oh crap, did I, was that me? Did I do that? And then that becomes a, a, a introspective thing of how do I interact with my fellow black students? Mm-hmm. Could that have been me? And then what do I do about it after that? You know what I mean? Um, but at the Boston Conservatory, the Boston Conservatory is much like in the theater world itself is a very, uh, what we've come to call at school, a very latte liberal kind of place Mm. where it's cool to be very accepting. Um, You get a lot of social clout for uh, posting infographics on your Instagram for Blackout Tuesday, you know what I mean, or was it Thursday? Uh, All that kind of stuff is very, it, it, it sets you up socially to be, a more ex, uh, acceptable person, you know what I mean? However, when you actually get into it, you start to realize that a lot of these people would not know what racism and microaggressions looked like if it bit them on the butt because they themselves are huge proponents of it. Like there's this one girl I went to school with who her Instagram is very much um, always posting infographics about racism, mm. uh, black squares, you know what I mean? I stand with this, say her name, da 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 hashtags galore. But when I was in school, I at the beginning of my second semester, I faced some financial hardships. And when I got it situated, when I got it sussed out with the school, the school was very, very generous in helping me with that situation. But when I told her, she's a friend of mine, when I told her that I was really successful, she said something along the lines of, God, I wish I was black and that I wasn't in the upper middle class. <laughs> because, wow. exactly, because that, because that, because uh, that meant that the only reason that I was ahead of the game was because I was black and people felt right. bad for me. You know what I mean? Other than the fact that I had spent the past 72 hours without sleep, emailing people, calling people, showing up at people's offices, almost walked to one lady's house. You know what I mean? because i was i was on it but i think that i think that people 
at the campus that I attend want to, and I think this is the case for kind of all of America right now, especially, they, the fear of being called racist is worse than actually being racist. Mm. It's, it's the fear that people will see me for this thing. So I have to go all in on the other end of the spectrum. When in reality, I haven't done anything to suggest that I'm not this thing other than have black friends and be like, oh my God, you would be great if we ever did fences. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I, I, think, I, I think that when you when you, when it comes from a standpoint of the arts and dr Beasy mm. might have touched on this a little bit on your last episode but when it comes from a standpoint of the arts there is uh, an allowance for mediocrity um and I, i've spoken to my dad about this before there are some black students that i go to school with who are fantastic actors and actresses fantastic musicians the whole nine there are others however that kind of suck. But those people are afforded uh, a, a platform and the suspicion of greatness because if you're black and you are at as high a level of performance mm. as the Boston Conservatory should be about, then you automatically are great. When in reality, I can look at your performance and tell you that you're not. But there's also this inherent fear that, again, going back to the fear of being called a racist is worse than being racist, of, well, I can't tell that person that their performance wasn't Viola Davis worthy, because if I do that, then I might be some sort of racist. Somebody might think that I'm some sort of racist. Yeah. Um, somebody might think that because I was not enthralled by the performance of a person of color even if that performance was not enthralling that i am all of a sudden a bigot you know what i mean right. and uh, a classmate of mine um frustrated me recently um after the death of chadwick boseman mm. because he posted on his instagram saying that you can't and this is on the other end of the spectrum he said you can't mourn chadwick boseman if the only film you've seen him in is Black Panther, because that's performative and X, Y, and Z. Hmm. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think if the only movie you've ever seen Chevin Postman is, is Black Panther, you have every right to mourn the death of a human person. You know what I mean? Um, but Black Panther in and of itself was a groundbreaking performance and a groundbreaking film that is important to Black cinema and cinema as a whole. So that would be like if I said the only movie that I saw Meryl Streep in was Devil Wears Prada and she passed away and I mourned her death, then I'm a performative feminist, you know <laughs> what I mean? which is by no means realistic. Yeah. And I, I think that on campus, be it in high school or in college, and this is at some fault, like we were talking about before, of the curriculum, you run into this what can I say or what can I do that makes me comfortable, but that may or may not be too honest? And when you're in the world of the arts, honesty is kind of the whole thing, be it musically, be it acting, be it dance even. Honesty and self-expression 
and identity and all that kind of stuff is what makes or breaks a good performance. And I think that people afford honesty in some places and, and don't afford honesty in other places. Because if I am honestly acting as oh, a white person in this musical who's never really had any problems, then that is a very comfortable place to be. But like, for example, in, um, uh, what was it? Um, Django Unchained. Leonardo DiCaprio would often, like it's been reported by a bunch of people, that Leonardo DiCaprio would often stop in the middle of a scene and be like, this is so uncomfortable. Me having to act as a racist person makes me so uncomfortable. And the story goes that Samuel L. Jackson pulled him aside and was like, yo man, this is what we do every day. So like, we're on the clock. You gotta, you gotta get it together. And I think that is inherently the problem because it's so easy to, it's so easy to call out other people for being whatever, for being racist, for being bigoted, for ha being a, a part of a curriculum or of an industry that supports X, Y, and Z. But it's so much more difficult to call yourself out on on that kind of stuff. And I think yeah. kind of tying it all back in, the whole uh, Black at Instagram pages are a very good device to kind of force somebody into that, that questioning, to mm. force somebody into that, this post, I can't believe that this thing happened at the school that I go to. Um, what can I do about it? What have I done about it? Was this even me who did this thing? You know what I mean? And then where do they go about that? And I think that you, it's admirable that you would go to such lengths to try and fix it. You know what I mean? Even if it wasn't you, you know what I mean? But to be so proactive in that is what a lot of people are missing. They're not missing the proactive part of it. What they hear is, I or somebody I know is attacked and then they're on the defensive, you know what I mean? Rather than this thing was brought to light, now what is the next move? Because it's not my, in terms of the whole mythical Negro thing, it is not my or any other black student or faculty member to teach you why we are marginalized. You know what I mean? It's not our bird, it's not our cross to carry to help you understand why you are what is is part of the problem you know what i mean mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of what it what it's like on on campus for me from college and high school it's fascinating to i mean thank you jacob for sharing that it's um making me realize that uh although i would have given dacha the same advice to try to seek out a person you may have inadvertently hurt and make amends that there is this broader purpose so you know dacha you and sava and uh uh now i'm forgetting her name Ms. matz's daughter it doesn't matter the um the few people who may have been identified as having made somebody else uncomfortable or contributed to some problem. Jacob, part of what I hear you saying is 
as uncomfortable as it might be, you know, Dacha and Sava and others have to sit with the task or be challenged by the task of being more introspective and more of a sort of Ibram Kendi anti-racist taking an active role in uh, trying to be a equitable person who's more self-aware, more considerate. And if that's one of the takeaways, you know, it's sort of like saying, well, you know, the, the goal isn't so much that you come to the conclusion uh, about a particular incident. The goal is to heighten awareness of what's happening and kind of force this introspection that you're talking about so that going forward, you know, as long as it's not paralyzing, that's that's the thing that I worry about is that people will, f you know, fear, not not just people, but especially white people, like, you know, crap, I, I'm not just, I'm not going to open my mouth. It is just too dangerous to put, you know, because I, you know, I, I'm going to say something that is going to get me in trouble. You know, it's, 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 it's I too, think part of the problem, dicey. though, not to cut you off, Chris, I think part of the problem, um, and this is not an, an indictment so much as this kind of advice, uh, Dr., on, on that situation even, but I think part of the problem is mainly people decide to even look at it only when something like this raises its head, as opposed to, like, I think, I think largely people in general, but particularly white people, are afforded the ability to go through life and not consider people of other races because you've been taught in second grade that black people were slaves and then that was it. So you're afforded the ability to kind of go through life and and, and just kind of blindly um, interact with people and not think about any of the consequences of those actions on people and some of these things like the black at this, that, the other, or having people say, hey, you know, if I'm out, like we were talking uh, when we talked with uh, Andy and Brian, Chris, when I'm out shoveling my driveway and you come by and ask me how much I charge and I've been waving at you for the whole year before the snow fell and you think that I somehow work here. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. that should awaken. When I say something about that to you, that should awaken something in you that says your awareness, your <laughs> dealing with people is so, you know what I mean, to where, especially people of color, to where your knee-jerk reaction. And I'm not saying you see people like that necessarily, Dodger, but what I'm trying to say is you have to say this is how I deal period in life, not just because of this post in Black at Exeter or Black at Maris or Black at whatever. That may cause you to do an introspection and look at yourself or whatever, but when we're teaching some of these things about communication, a lot of times what I'm telling people is you need to kind of change just how you get down if something is wrong with it. Mm. or examine it, determine that it's okay, and that maybe somebody misunderstood you. If you have the opportunity to fix it, cool. If you don't, then you got to, you know what I mean, try to be more clear as you go forward. But the other thing is you can be the best, most anti-racist individual walking the earth, 
And somebody can still misunderstand something you say because of a sensitivity they have and not necessarily have anything to do with you Mm -hmm. being racist. And so, like Jacob said, kudos to you for, for being proactive enough to go and try to fix it. But the thing is just, the question is not necessarily, did I offend this person and am I the bad guy? The question is, how am I living my life and am I cool with that? And, Dr. and if I'm you... living my life in a way that is where I'm treating everybody equitably and, and fair and, and, and that, then I'm good. You know what I mean? And 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 that's that's more the thing I think that even with this show, I want people to kind of take away from. You should be able to go out and say that we were talking about um, the shooting of the young man uh, in Kenosha in the back. Somewhere you say, hey, pro-police, not police, whatever. You should be able to just say, hey, you know, shooting a guy seven times in the back is wrong. I Somewhere we should be able to come together on that, period. The fact that we can't is the problem, not... You know what I mean? Whether I stand with police and I say, I don't think anybody who's saying don't shoot black people, unarmed black people in the streets is saying that I don't want to call the police if something goes wrong. I think they're saying I'm afraid to call the police because I might get shot. I'm out here trying to stop a fight and I get shot in the back in parallel. That's obviously a real fear. So then that doesn't make me anti-police. That makes me pro my life. You know what I mean? That's two different things. And so... I think that it's, you know, I think that you should be able to come together and say, if this were me, how would I feel? So I'm saying that to you as far as this thing goes to say, if there's a question for you, that question should be, how have I been living my life and dealing with people? And if I have been dealing with everybody where I don't have any of that uh, bias and I'm not showing or illustrating any of that bias and be honest with yourself and if you are and you're cool with that, then own it. And then don't be because that's what Jacob saying. A lot of people don't want to own it. They want to be afraid of being called, you know, a racist. And but then so in that way, you just you kind of throwing rocks and hiding your hands. You want to do racist stuff and then say, hey, don't don't call me that. But if you're not that kind of person and you don't seem like you're trying to be that kind of person because that kind of person wouldn't reach out and say, hey, listen, I want to talk to the person who may have been offended by something I said. So if you're the, that kind of person who does that, then you have to say, I will try and make sure that I am, especially if I don't know if this was me or not living my life in a way that treats everybody fairly. And that is the most that any of us can do. And so I would encourage you to just, you know, kind of like you said, once you've done that introspection, which is the point of the thing, then shore up where you need to shore up. If there is no place right now where you need that, then, you know, fine. We can all use some kind of tuck pointing every now and again. You get to do that and then, cool but after that sleep well you know just continue to go through life yeah. trying to treat people do you dutch it i mean david those are beautiful words of of wisdom and i don't think i've ever asked dacha whether uh you know subsequent to your writing and hearing back there's not a way for you to be in touch with this person were you feeling okay well that's it i'm gonna 
I'm going to open my mouth less um, out of fear that I might unintentionally uh, say or do something racist, or did it make you feel, I mean, now we're a few months out from it, but, or did it make you feel like David was suggesting just, okay, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be more self-aware, I'll try to shore things up, um, and make an even stronger effort to be, to treat others fairly. Yeah, well, yeah, um, I'll, uh, I want to just, uh, echo what Jacob said, that it, it the, the introspection is, is one of the, um, tremendous benefits of the of an Instagram account, um, and almost, uh, unique benefit to a format, like the black eyed Instagram accounts. I did, I think I found myself much uh, following the account and, and, um, following the account much more closely after that, um, reading, reading posts much more carefully, uh, because I, I, it sort of drew me in a little bit and in a way that speaks to the, the, um, privilege that I have of being able to not, you know, it's not, I'm not reminded of it every day. Um, and I think it also was is a powerful tool during you know when everybody was staying home and uh, uh, on Instagram on you know did you, you keep in your pocket to to have that you know in a in a place where people with skin that looks like mine often are able to completely forget and go into their shells and into their own world and you know in, in my room where I was doing my homework just me and I, you know, um, close the rest of the world and off on the other side of the door. Um, and, and I think I, I, uh, you know, I, without, it was a little bit strange because without having an actual face to face conversation with another person, I, I found myself, um, uh, hearing and, and, trying trying to understand other people's uh um stories much more intensely than i ever had in a facilitated hmm. conversation with you know the proctor looking at me um and and i i i think that you know i i missed the face-to-face -face conversation i also think that uh that, that was um uh especially after after the post I had mentioned before, very uh, sort of sort of transformative for me to be able to, you know, I was suddenly paying a lot a lot closer attention. Um, okay. The Instagram account. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we have to to go, I want to get one other question out that I'm just curious about, and this is uh, I want to know what you both feel i know dr touched on it a little bit when he was talking about the letters from the deans and the in the administration um but what you both feel the efforts are of your institution to deal with uh the racial tensions of the country and any of that spill over onto campus and do you feel like the b clause to that question is do you feel like um uh, that those efforts uh 
are impactful or are they going to really do anything to to fix uh you know what you see and how you see uh any racial problems on campus you know? either um, of you can start yeah i'll go first um my, my um i think similar to what dr said earlier is that it's a unfortunately reactive and not necessarily proactive um but my school has kind of a it's a double-edged sword kind of thing because the theater industry is making this march to be inclusive um and so the school is taking after that but the problem is we don't have the student body to be inclusive we don't have the i'm, I'm one of three black students in a 70 person musical theater class of, of 2023 um so if we wanted to put on any show like if we wanted to do, even if we wanted to do hairspray we need to pick off black people from the street to fill out the cast um and i think that with their response we've gotten a lot of letters and um a lot of promises to do more inclusive shows to do more colorblind casting this and this but i reached out to the school um I spoke to Kathy Young, who is the, the um, uh, executive director of the conservatory. And I was like, the school, because a lot of the students were very angry. They were like, this isn't enough. We want to see change now, you know what I mean, in the student body and in the faculty and all this kind of stuff. When I, you know, understand that fixing an institution is, like my dad said, a lot like turning a cruise ship. It's not something that happens immediately it, it takes time it takes effort it takes this and that so i reached out to kathy young and i tried to offer my perspective um and offer some help and some guidance where i could and all that kind of stuff and so we were in talks to make a student task force um to bridge the gap between the student bodies of color and the faculty and uh, administration to see where the pitfalls were to see what they could fix and do better and Kathy and I had a meeting. I had a meeting with Scott, who was the dean of the theater department. Um, and I tried to follow up. And there were some, we'll have more meetings later kind of thing. And then I get an email saying that there is a student task force in the works. And the Black student's name on it, who is like the liaison, which should was supposed to be me because of the conversation that we had had, was a different black student who was more digestible. Um, hmm. uh, and because there's this, there is a fear that is an unconscious one um, that my mo mother always says, she says the most threatening thing in this country is, a, is an educated black man. Hmm. Um, and you see it with all of the, basically almost all of the black men in history who've been assassinated. Um, but unlike some other black students who will make the white administration feel bad or on the defense for being racist by just saying you all are racist. I, I, on the other hand say, this is why this is racist. This is the history of why this is racist. Mm -hmm. This is how you feed into the history of why it's racist. And this is where you personally are at fault. And that is way worse 
um, in terms of, of, of an emotional response than yeah. this other thing. And so I was, you know, I was disappointed that I was kind of uh, excommunicated, you know what I mean, from the thing that I was trying to help facilitate. But to a degree, I understand why I was, because it's a lot easier to have a different Black student who can be the face, the, the colored face of, of this thing, than to have another Black student who is holding people accountable. Mm. Those are two very different things. And so I think my school is, I think their heart is in the right place, yeah. but I think they still have some personal pitfalls and some hurdles that they need to get over before they can make real, real change. Dacha, what about for you? Yeah, so so again, I think I have a, a little bit of a limited experience because I'm now off of the high school email list and because I'm taking a gap year off of my college email list. So um, my my knowledge of of what the high school and the college are uh, have done and and are doing and planning to do is is very limited. I think that uh, I I can speak maybe more more uh in a more informed way about for example what this summer camp is doing um which for for uh in in the last maybe five years there's been a very strong effort to um in the case of the summer camp uh, make make the camp a more welcoming place for for any boy it's a boy summer camp so any any boy uh, and and in in the wake of of the spring and national context going in from the spring into the summer, uh, I think that the the camp has taken a much more uh, much more and like uh, uh, quick acting uh, plan to to before next summer, before we welcome campers back next summer, uh, sort of pick up our slack, overdue changes that, that need to be made in order for any boy to be able to, to you know, come, come down the, the road here into camp where they will live for, for two weeks and, and feel like they, they belong here. Um, in, in the case of this camp in particular, it's a lot of uh, clarification of, of um, Native American uh, cultural uh, appropriation. Uh, there are also, because it's a um, all boys summer camp, a lot of uh, new considerations and and um, sort of planning on on how how the camp handles things like toxic masculinity, uh, um, gender and sexuality, uh, a lot of things that have been very uh, uh, ingrained in in camp cult in this camp culture in a, in a traditional way and uh, the the changes that or in the changes in the attitudes among the staff here towards these sorts of changes I think has been um, really much stronger since um, the spring throughout the summer now going forward in preparation for next year than, than they ever have been. Uh, 
Um, but at the same time, a lot of the changes we're making are, are obviously long overdue. Um, and I, I think that uh, Exeter is also making a lot of progress. I think that there's obviously a lot of work that needs to, needs to be done more uh, uh, changes to the way that people interact on campus outside of a facilitated discussion. Uh, you can have a million uh, talks around a hardest table with a proctor and a script and and may not change the way that um, people actually feel when they pass each other uh, on the path. I mean, I think that that's a much harder uh, problem to solve. Um, I'm, I'm not really knowledgeable about the specifics of that plan because um, I'm not a student there anymore, so I, I'm not uh, included in those uh, in these days, those emails. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, I mean, I'm very proud of the work that the summer camp here is doing, um, though it's overdue and though there's a lot more to be done. Um, I think that this last year has been a wake-up call, um, yeah. which is uh, the summer camp, which is a predominantly white um, institution, which is deeply rooted in tradition and and uh, for a lot of reasons has stuck to the way that things have always been done uh, without realizing why. Uh, well, I hope that, and again, um, Jacob and Dacha, thank you both for sharing your perspectives. Mm -hmm. I hope that one of the takeaways for our listeners and our viewers is, uh, first of all, Jacob, I'll always remember what you said about the mechanism of change isn't always comfortable. And it is often the case that uh, choices of who's on a committee or who gets to speak or who's cast in this role or who's the dean of this or the chair of that is one of convenience. It's one of, um, you know, partial sanitizing. Uh, mm -hmm. Won't it be a little bit easier if the, you know, the great speeches by Martin Luther King are available openly on the shelves, but people have to dig a little bit if they want to look at the Malcolm X stuff. And isn't it great that you went and talked with one of the top administrators, but you know, thanks anyway, um, we're going to appoint this other person to be a member of the task force. Um, I, I hope that what you and Dacha are advocating, the kind of, you know, more, uh, not just rapid, but more concentrated, intentional, and focused change. I hope people understand that it's going to be uncomfortable <laughs> and mm -hmm. there's not a way to wrap it all up in a bow and come up with some kind of master plan and it's very much the way i have felt in some of these facilitated discussions that somebody has scripted out the words that they want to hear me say but uh, to be honest i'm the same guy walking out as i was walking in um and so I think it's up to largely, you know, your generation to embrace the 
the discomfort in a sense, um, like get ready for it. I mean, it's like you, you guys are both artists and are, are both into performing art. And so much of what we consider to be uh, part of the, you know, theater canon or the musical canon was when it debuted, you know, completely polemical and people were saying that that should never be performed. And, you know, we kind of laugh at that now, like, really? A few extra French horns got you bent out of shape. Um, that was the big controversy. Um, you know, we, but we got to do it. We got to do it. And I hope that, 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 you know, there's something that the two of you can do interpersonally or artistically to condition the field and prepare uh, the world for the the difficult, you know, self-examination and difficult feelings that will accompany some of the change that ultimately will make us as, you know, as a species, as a group, you know, more fair, as David said, um, and that that there's more love and less hate, you know, to paint it with a very broad brush. But I don't know, that's that's my wish. David, you should close us out because we're at time. Yeah, um, I, I want to say thanks to both of you guys. Uh, I am more encouraged, you know, uh, than I was after speaking with Dr. Beasy, largely because uh, what I see in both of you, which is uh, commendable and, like I said, uh, gives me hope is the good heart and willingness to open those discussions, you know, Dacha on the interpersonal level, uh, when there was, you know, the thought that, hey, there may be a misunderstanding here, uh, reached out where a lot of people would not have uh, to try to get that uh, handled and squared away. And I think that that's commendable. Jacob, when he sees uh, things going on on campus rather than just, uh, yelling and, and rah, 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 and then going home to judge, uh, actually tried to reach out and, and uh, affect some change. So I think uh, having uh, your heart in the right place is one thing, but also having the guts to back it up is uh, is the other thing, and the, those guts come to bear when you start talking about accountability, and I think that's uh, where both of you guys are are doing great work and shining and I just encourage you to keep doing that uh, because that is going to be the thing that enables us to come to the table have these discussions and to uh, listen and to hold each other accountable and to hold ourselves accountable and then that's the only way that you know any sort of lasting change is going to going to work itself out so um, I appreciate you both thank you for sharing your experiences and your insights and uh, good luck in all your endeavors, and um, congratulations to the work that you're doing, uh, Dacha, at the camp, and what you're going to do when you get to college. Uh, and also, of course, Jacob, uh, continuing your work with Boko artistically and, uh, you know, socially. So I look forward to seeing you both uh, perform and do great things and saying, hey, I knew them. <laughs> so, Back in the day. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you thank both you so much. We love you guys, and we're 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 really proud of you. And mm -hmm. keep up the thank good work. Thank you, absolutely. Thank you, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White. Now what? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. 
To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristhurber.com.